Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 12, Towering Genius. The front page of the May 7th, 1836 Sangamo Journal carried a story of American barbarism. Nine days earlier, a cook named Francis McIntosh, a free black man, was arrested by St. Louis police for either refusing to help them catch someone or interfering with an arrest. When one of the officers told McIntosh he might spend five years in prison, McIntosh pulled out a knife, slashed one officer, and fatally wounded another. He escaped, but was later captured by a posse. Later that night, a mob attacked the jail where the sheriff held McIntosh. They pulled him out by his arms, legs, and hair. McIntosh was taken to the outskirts of town and chained to a locust tree as the mob piled scrap wood and shavings up to his knees. Then someone set the wood on fire. The flames leaped into McIntosh's clothes and burned his skin away from his body. As his face melted, McIntosh asked someone in the crowd to shoot him. When no one drew a gun, he started singing a hymn, then fell silent. McIntosh's murderers watched him burn for 20 minutes. Someone in the crowd finally declared him dead. The St. Louis Observer, a contemporary paper, picked up the narrative. Quote, Upon this, Though wrapped in flames, and though the fire had obliterated the features of humanity, he raised his head and spoke out distinctly, saying, No, no, I feel as much as any of you. I hear you all. Shoot me. Shoot me. We don't know how much longer the torture lasted before McIntosh died. The mob left his charred corpse at the tree. Later, a group of white boys took turns throwing rocks at McIntosh's body, trying to break his skull. The editor of the St. Louis Observer, a preacher named Elijah Lovejoy, who had become an outspoken critic of slavery, denounced the lynching as, quote, savage barbarity. For this, a judge named Luke Lawless, overseeing the case, made a ridiculous claim that McIntosh was raising a slave rebellion inspired by Lovejoy. Lovejoy was forced to relocate to Alton, Illinois, across the Mississippi River. Judge Lawless instructed a grand jury to not indict the lynchers, arguing that the mob was seized by a, quote, mysterious, metaphysical, and almost electrical frenzy that was, quote, beyond the reach of human law. The St. Louis Republican, whose account the Sangamo Journal ran on its front page, tried to rationalize the lynching. It said, quote, we believe that if the same terrible scene had been enacted in another town of the Union, under the same sudden and tumultuous excitement, similar summary proceedings would have been adopted. Let the veil of oblivion be drawn over the fatal affair. But Abraham Lincoln, a reader and contributor to the Sangamo Journal, would not forget. He was a white man who race-baited his political opponents— and a legislator who attacked the very concept of African-American citizenship. But this kind of violence unsettled Lincoln. 
it challenged his view of law ordering a republic. Lincoln viewed the rule of law as sacred, the source of peace, and a bulwark against tyranny. This reverence for the law was the seed of Lincoln's moral growth. It will take some time to see this. His legislative career did not make him a giant of conscience. But his anti-slavery protests and his reaction to McIntosh's murder showed Lincoln grasping towards something beyond the day-to-day battles of politics. He moved, ever cautiously, into areas where few others dared to step. Lincoln was, by mid-1837, earning his living off what he saw as the great force for order in society. He worked in partnership with John Todd Stewart, sharing a small second-story office on Springfield's town square over the courthouse. It was furnished like a modern bachelor apartment. There was a chair and a bench, as well as a bed with a buffalo robe on it. A trapdoor allowed the partners to listen to court proceedings below, and Stewart and Lincoln made a little bit of money renting their office out as a jury room. Stewart was just about a year older than Lincoln, but he had been a lawyer for nearly a decade. A handsome man standing six feet tall, Stewart came from an aristocratic family in Kentucky, and unusual for the era, he had a college degree. Stewart was an outgoing and charming young man who acted like the elite white Southerner he was raised to be, greeting people with a very deep bow. At the same time, there was a bit of slickness about him. Stewart earned the nickname Jerry Sly during his time in the Illinois General Assembly. Stewart never gave his reasons why he wanted Lincoln as a law partner. The two men served together in the Black Hawk War and had worked closely together in the legislature. Stewart had encouraged Lincoln to study the law, and Lincoln always gave Stewart credit for starting his legal career. But Stewart's later memories of his partner were curdled by political disagreements and jealousy over Lincoln's achievements. He would describe Lincoln goofing off in their office and called him, quote, sluggish and apathetic. Stewart probably did see potential in Lincoln, but the junior partner's ambition was already an inferno by the time he met Stewart. It may have been as simple as Stewart liking Lincoln, at least at the time. Whatever the reasons, the two men worked as partners for four years. They took all types of cases, but their biggest source of income was debt collection. Historian Brian Dirk writes that of the 91 cases Lincoln was involved with during that first year with Stewart, 65 involved debt. It was steady, if not lucrative, work, and often involved little more than writing up papers. If they moved to collect a debt, for example... Stewart and Lincoln could open up their copy of Chitty's Pleadings, find the relevant brief, and copy it onto a piece of paper, filling in the names of the plaintiff and defendant. This helped an inexperienced attorney like Lincoln get comfortable with the law. As Dirk writes, quote, Debt collection in general did not require extraordinary aptitude on his part. Filling in of blank spaces on a writ of assumpsit required little in the way of lawyerly imagination or skill. Relatively few debt collection cases involved a jury trial or even the calling of witnesses. Other cases provide insight into the community in which Stewart and Lincoln worked. In October 1838, they got $5 for their work on a case titled Ellis v. Blankenship v. Negroes. The plaintiffs in the case tried to block a property sale that would satisfy a judgment rendered in favor of a group of African Americans. 
The outcome of the case is unknown, but it's an important reminder that Springfield had a black community, despite the efforts of white politicians to deny them their rights. Then there were the Seamier cases. In March 1838, a man named Henry Truett stormed into a hotel looking for another man named Jacob Early. Early, an ally of Stephen Douglas, had offered a resolution at a Democratic convention demanding that President Martin Van Buren fire Truett from his lucrative federal land office job in Galena. Truett had gotten the position thanks to Congressman William May, who was Truett's father-in-law and who Douglas had shoved aside to get the congressional nomination. Truett found Early reading in a chair near a fireplace in the hotel. He sat down and stared at Early for minutes while the room around him cleared out. Truett demanded to know if Early was behind the resolution. Early ducked the question, causing Truett to yell that Early was, quote, a damned liar and a damned coward. Then he drew a gun. Early picked up a chair to defend himself. The two men circled each other for a bit, then Truett fired. Early fell to the ground. Truett ran out of the hotel. Early died three days later. On his deathbed, he made sure people knew that he grabbed the chair because he thought Truett would kill him. Truett was arrested and tried for murder. The prosecution team, which included Stephen Douglas, used the witness testimony and the deathbed confession to make the obvious point that Truett killed Early. Truett's defense team, which included Stewart and Lincoln, based their defense on a ludicrous argument. The chair constituted a deadly weapon. A newspaper account summed up the argument as, quote, Early could have immediately crushed Truett with the chair, that he intended to do so, or the Truett supposed he intended to do so. Lincoln did not lead the defense, but the other attorneys gave him the closing argument. Lincoln's speech has not survived, but it probably played heavily on sympathy for Truett. The newspaper account, not mentioning Lincoln by name, said that Truett's defense attorneys argued, quote, that his pride of character was much wounded by the resolution, that the frailties and passions of human nature should be somewhat indulged, that he had suffered in prison seven months, etc., etc., etc. Stephen Logan, who was a member of the defense team, said Lincoln made a, quote, short but strong and sensible speech. The jury deliberated for three hours and acquitted Truett. Stewart and Lincoln were paid $500 for their work. That would be nearly $12,000 today. Lincoln suddenly had a reputation as a trial lawyer. Stewart, meanwhile, looked to Congress. He'd lost a race for the U.S. House in 1836 and was determined to win in the 1838 contest where he would face Douglas. Stewart may have thought Lincoln could help with the burdens of the office, the usual duty for junior partners, but Lincoln was useful to Stewart politically. Lincoln came from humble origins, which helped the aristocratic Stewart in the days of Jacksonian democracy. If you can't claim to have been born in a log cabin, get a law partner who can. Lincoln, who was seeking a third term in the legislature in 1838, was an enthusiastic and aggressive partisan for Stewart and other Whigs. Party lines were hardening in the face of an economic catastrophe. 
We like to think that Americans carved the nation out of the forest, unafraid and unassisted. But in reality, there was a lot of foreign capital in the United States in the 1830s, and specifically, British capital, which underwrote much of the commerce and construction projects of the early republic. That made the American economy vulnerable to decisions in London. In May 1836, the Bank of England raised interest rates, which led British merchants who had invested in large swaths of American land and infrastructure to call in their loans. That drove up interest rates in the United States. In England, the tight money prevented English mills from buying cotton, America's leading commodity, causing cotton prices to fall. This, as Sidney Blumenthal writes, exposed a hodgepodge of debts and bad bets, not unlike the 2008 crisis that led to the Great Recession. One bank in New Orleans had gotten the Louisiana legislature to back mortgages from planters. These were turned into bonds sold on the European market, which put money back into planters' hands, which led to more speculation, creating a bubble. These mortgages, by the way, were on slaves. With the collapse of cotton prices suddenly making loan repayment very hard, credit got very tight, American banks stopped paying out hard coin, prices throughout the economy fell, and the panic of 1837 was on. It threw people out of work and left lots in Springfield that seemed ready to burst with new buildings, empty for a decade. The Depression itself lasted a full six years, with a few false dawns of prosperity in between. Arguments over the proper response to the calamity drew clear divisions between the parties. Before 1835, the borders between pro- and anti-Jackson forces in Illinois had been fluid. Lincoln was an anti-Jackson man, but he regularly courted Jackson voters. His success was due to divisions among Democrats and his own personal popularity. The birth of the convention system began to firm up party boundaries. The Depression cemented them. Antebellum political parties were not analogs for today's organizations. The Democrats and Whigs competed in an electorate limited to white men. They fought in an overwhelmingly agrarian society where the value of agricultural goods exceeded that of manufacturers. The Whigs died out before the Civil War, and the Democrats went through a century of changes and realignments. Today's Democrats have more in common with the populists of the 1890s than their Jacksonian ancestors. These parties were rooted in their time, not ours. So, what exactly was a Whig? The Democrats' opponents reached back to the American Revolution for their name. The groups today that we call Patriot and Loyalist at the time took the name Whig and Tory, respectively, hearkening back to the first political parties in Great Britain. The Whigs in jolly old England opposed the excessive exercise of royal power. In America, people opposed to King George III took the title. In the 1830s, Jackson's opponents chose the name to oppose what they viewed as the president's overreach, specifically in his dealings with the Bank of the United States. Jackson had waged a fierce war to kill the bank. It was no unblemished lamb, but it did provide a valuable service in the American economy. It chiefly regulated credit and the money supply, not unlike today's Federal Reserve. While Whigs disagreed on the value of the bank, they all hated Jackson's high-handed actions toward it, 
In particular, his refusal to consult Congress before pulling government money out and placing it in state banks. These banks were chosen for political loyalty to Jackson, not financial soundness, and were dubbed pet banks. As Michael Holt writes in his History of the Whig Party, quote, From the Whigs' perspective, everything that Jackson had done demonstrated his intention to amass power in his own hands, to upset constitutionally mandated balance among the branches of the federal government, to subvert or destroy the independence of other political leaders and voters through patronage, the influence of his pet banks, or intimidation, and thereby to crush popular liberty. The bank fight became part of the Whigs' DNA. Whatever their other differences, the Whigs, to the day of their death, believed in congressional supremacy. As president, Lincoln was very assertive when it came to war powers. But on domestic matters, he retained a Whiggish deference to Congress. Broadly speaking, the Whigs tended to favor activist government, one that supported banks and internal improvements. In the short term, they hoped injecting money into the economy would revive commerce and end the Depression. This appealed to the wealthy, but also drew aspiring professionals, and as Holt writes, quote, people in those areas most deeply involved in the commercial economy, mostly those who depended on access to credit. Democrats at this time tended to favor smaller, less active government, though there were exceptions. Stephen Douglas, for instance, supported internal improvements. Andrew Jackson was their great unifying force. Democrats viewed him as a hero for attacking entrenched privilege, symbolized by the Bank of the United States. Most viewed the developing industrial and commercial sectors as a threat. As Holt writes, quote, Democratic voting strength was concentrated among subsistence farmers in the most remote and economically underdeveloped regions of states, among voters, that is, who feared becoming ensnared in precisely the kind of commercial monetary network Whigs wanted to foster. The Democrats and Whigs also had fundamentally opposite views of what they believed the country should be. Henry Clay, the Whigs' great architect and Lincoln's political hero, had been stunned by the country's poor performance in the War of 1812, a war he helped foster, and wanted the federal government to protect the nation's economic independence. He believed a high tariff on imports would protect American industry and foster self-determination. Michael Lind, in his book What Lincoln Believed, quotes economist Henry Carey, an advocate of protectionism, who later advised Lincoln. Carey said, quote, By adopting free trade, or the British system, we place ourselves side by side with the men who have ruined Ireland and India and are now poisoning and enslaving the Chinese people. The Democrats thought the country would always be agricultural and a supplier of raw material to British mills. The tariff, in their eyes, ignored British dominance and needlessly jacked up consumer prices. There were always exceptions. No politician, Whig or Democrat, could win in Pennsylvania without advocating a high tariff. But those were the general patterns, and the attitudes persisted for decades. During the Civil War, Confederate President Jefferson Davis would constantly signal that he saw the South as a colonial producer, hoping to nudge Great Britain toward intervention. In Springfield, these ideological differences could turn into physical altercations. Lincoln's friend Anson Henry, who was leading the effort to build the state capitol in Springfield, challenged a local Democrat named James Adams for justice of the peace. 
Lincoln despised Adams, a shady character who Lincoln believed had defrauded one of his clients. He wrote a series of anonymous articles bitterly accusing Adams of fraud and painting him as a liar and a drunk. Douglas, meanwhile, penned anonymous attacks on Henry. The race got extremely heated. A paper partly owned by Douglas was attacked by a mob twice. There were three stabbings related to the campaign, which Henry ultimately lost. The historian Michael Burlingame also identifies Lincoln as the author of an attack on John C. Calhoun, his former surveying boss, who was running for the House seat vacated by Dan Stone, the co-signer of Lincoln's anti-slavery resolution. Whether or not this screed worked, Calhoun lost the election to Lincoln's friend, an English immigrant named Edward Baker, we will see much more of. But Lincoln's main focus was getting Stewart elected to Congress and tearing down Douglas. Lincoln at first claimed that their strategy was to ignore the diminutive young attorney, saying in one letter, quote, Isn't that the best mode of treating so small a matter? If this really was Lincoln's intent, he quickly abandoned it. On January 13, 1838, a series of letters signed by, quote, a conservative began appearing in the Sangamo Journal. Historians identify Lincoln as the author, and it follows his usual conceit of pretending to be a Democrat sharing some inside and inevitably embarrassing information about the party and its nominees, in this case, Douglas. The second conservative letter accused John C. Calhoun of encouraging Douglas to run for Congress so Calhoun could get Douglas's lucrative job in a federal land office. The letter claimed that Calhoun told Douglas that, quote, such a plotting occupation was well enough, but that for one of his towering genius, it was absolutely intolerable. You, continued he, may be president of these United States just as well as not. A seat in Congress is not worthy to be your abiding place, though you might, with propriety, serve one term in the capacity of representative. And then conservative goes on to claim that, quote, History gives no account of a man of your age occupying such high ground as you now do. At 24, Bonaparte was unheard of, and in fact, so it has been with all great men in former times. These letters marked the start of Lincoln's obsession with Douglas, an obsession that would last to the eve of his presidency. Douglas, four years Lincoln's junior, was about to embark on a rapid journey up the political ladder that in less than a decade would land him in the U.S. Senate. Douglas's charisma stemmed from his supporters' identification with him, both as a man of the people and an ideal for what they wanted to be. Like many Illinoisans, Douglas, a native of Vermont, had come from another state and like most of them, he was young. Douglas was just 25 in 1838, and voters aged 21 to 25 made up the single largest age group of the Illinois electorate. He deliberately courted a common image. Douglas dressed up in a rumpled manner and could fight physically and verbally. He also had a habit of sitting on men's laps as he worked a room. This seems odd today, but according to his recent biographer Martin Quitt, it had a far different connotation in the 1830s. Quit writes, quote, It signaled that the little giant did not think himself so high and mighty that he could not repose on a man's knees. It figuratively brought him down to the level of his peers. In remembering Douglas's stepping down to smoke with and sit on the laps of lawyers, an attorney called him, quote, The most democratic judge I ever knew. But Douglas was also an independent man 
someone with his own business and living quarters, unlike many of his supporters who still lived at home. As Quitt writes, quote, His charisma in his early 20s was based on his fraternal relationship to the electorate. He was not a father figure like the founders. Rather, he was like a big brother. The day the second conservative letter ran, Lincoln delivered a speech to the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, titled The Perpetuation of Our Political Institutions. It's the first time we see Lincoln reaching for some kind of higher ideal beyond winning. He might not grasp it in this speech, but it shows his thinking at the time and points to later, more eloquent speeches. The address focused on maintaining Republican institutions in the face of mob violence. Lincoln had a few examples in mind. One was the lynching of a group of gamblers in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1836 amid hysteria about an alleged slave uprising. But Lincoln also made a clear reference to Francis McIntosh's lynching, which he referred to as, quote, that horror-striking scene in St. Louis. And, as Lincoln knew all too well, it had a violent sequel. After being chased out of St. Louis for writing about McIntosh's murder, Elijah Lovejoy had set up his printing press in Alton. The city had strong commercial ties to New Orleans, and publishing anti-slavery articles was a way to get Alton residents angry. Lovejoy's press was destroyed, but he managed to raise money to get a new one and continued his work. A real moral giant, Lovejoy attacked slavery in the nation's capital, writing that as long as it existed, every citizen was, quote, a slaveholder and a licensor of the horrid traffic in slaves carried on under the very shadow of the capital's walls. He also called for the formation of an Illinois anti-slavery society, which got condemned in a meeting of citizens in Springfield and led to more attacks on his press. When the Anti-Slavery Society finally met in Alton in October 1837, Usher Linder, Lincoln's old bank antagonist and the Attorney General of Illinois, led a mob that took over the meeting. Finally, as he defended his press from another mob, Elijah Lovejoy was shot and killed on November 7, 1837. Linder, Illinois' Attorney General, defended members of the mob, calling Lovejoy's murder a triumph of, quote, genuine democracy. Lincoln might have agreed with this observation, but he didn't see it as a positive. Unleashing the mob was the first step toward tyranny. He said, quote, By such examples, by instances of the perpetrators of such acts going unpunished, the lawless in spirit are encouraged to become lawless in practice, and having been used to no restraint but dread of punishment, they thus become absolutely unrestrained. Having ever regarded government as their deadliest bane, they make a jubilee of the suspension of its operations and pray for nothing so much as its total annihilation. Lincoln went on to express a fear that if the mob was allowed to spread over the land, good men would, quote, become tired and disgusted with a government that offers them no protection and turn to a strong man who would. He went on to say, quote, whenever this effect shall be produced among us, whenever the vicious portion of the population shall be permitted to gather in bands of hundreds and thousands and burn churches, ravage and rob provision stores, throw printing presses into rivers, shoot editors, and hang and burn obnoxious persons at pleasure and with impunity, depend on it. This government cannot last. 
Lincoln may have been trying to get his audience to transpose these fears onto Stephen Douglas. As Michael Burlingame notes, Lincoln's speech echoes much of the language in the conservative letter that ran in the Sangamo Journal that day. Where that letter had Calhoun calling Douglas a, quote, towering genius, invoking Bonaparte, and saying, quote, a seat in Congress is not worthy to be your abiding place, Lincoln said that same evening, quote, many great and good men sufficiently qualified for any task they should undertake may ever be found, whose ambition would aspire to nothing beyond a seat in Congress, a gubernatorial or presidential chair, but such belong not to the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle. What? Think you these places would satisfy an Alexander, a Caesar, or a Napoleon? Never. Towering genius disdains a beaten path. For decades, historians thought Lincoln's towering genius was himself, and that this speech painted an unconscious self-portrait. But as Burlingame argues, the conservative letter makes it seem more likely that Lincoln was making a specific reference to Douglas in this speech, and, by not naming him, subtly getting around the Lyceum's ban on explicit political speeches. But there is more than politics at play here. Lincoln's prescription for addressing mob rule seems to reflect his own tortured mental state. Toward the end of the speech, he says, quote, Passion has helped us, but it can do so no more. It will in the future be our enemy. Reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason, must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. And you feel Lincoln's horror when he discusses McIntosh's death. Lincoln said, quote, his story is very short, and is perhaps the most highly tragic of anything of its length that has ever been witnessed in real life. A mulatto man by the name of Mackintosh was seized in the street, dragged to the suburbs of the city, chained to a tree, and actually burned to death, and all within a single hour from the time he had been a freeman, attending to his own business, and at peace with the world. The young man sympathized with Mackintosh in a way few other whites did at the time. Lincoln, slowly, was reaching for something greater. Stewart and Douglas traveled the district during their race, attacking each other during the day and often sharing rooms in the evening. They couldn't always leave their disagreements on the stump. Stewart and Douglas brawled in a tavern. Stewart once got so incensed by a speech delivered by Douglas that he put him into a headlock. Douglas bit his thumb to escape, leaving a scar Stewart carried for life. When the election took place that August, Stewart narrowly defeated Douglas by 36 votes. Lincoln won a third term in the House, easily leading his ticket in the county. Lincoln had reached an early pinnacle. He was a prominent leader of the Whigs, whose prospects at the state and national level were on the upswing. Yet there were signs he was about to move downhill. The Whigs may have won a small majority of seats in the Illinois House in 1838, which should have put Lincoln in place to serve as Speaker. But he lost thanks to Whigs missing the vote, or in two cases, voting for his Democratic opponent, William Ewing. Ewing, who represented Vandalia, bitterly resented the loss of the Capitol and accused Springfield supporters of, quote, foul corruption. Lincoln also desperately defended the 1837 Internal Improvements Bill, long after it had become clear the state couldn't pay for it. 
with his two major achievements in the General Assembly under sustained attack, Lincoln grew testy during the 1838-1839 legislative session. At one point, he got so angry with Ewing that Usher Linder, watching them from a gallery, thought that Lincoln and Ewing would draw pistols on each other. It's a reminder that if Lincoln was growing, he was still a young man, and one who had yet to reach any height, political, professional, or moral. Next time, we'll see Lincoln throw himself into the 1840 campaign and return to the shameful race baiting he used in 1836. We'll also discuss a black-haired, blue-eyed young woman moving in with her sister and brother-in-law in Springfield's richest neighborhood. It's time to meet Mary Todd.